This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hey, it's Guy here. So have you ever wondered why your brain makes you you and mine makes me me? Well, there are a lot of mysterious, murky, and frankly unknown aspects to how our brains work. But scientists have been doing incredible things to answer one of the biggest unanswered questions in biology, which is, how do our brains make us? This episode originally aired in February of 2015. Here it is. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, the unknown brain. The mystery of how billions of neurons make us who we are. And the one brain that you think you might know, your own, that might be the biggest mystery of all. Could you ever have imagined that your brain would be the one that would kind of define your life and your career? <laughs> No. This is Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. I'm a trained neuroanatomist. And about 20 years ago, Jill was doing lab work at Harvard. She'd been researching other people's brains for years, particularly brains with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, brains that just didn't seem to function properly. And she was widely recognized as a rising star in the field. But then one morning, it was the morning of December 10th, 1996, Something happened to Jill's own brain. Once I awoke, I could not walk, talk, read, write. I could not recall any of the details of my life. Jill Bolte-Taylor died that day. Jill was having a massive stroke on the left side of her brain. And soon, she'd be rushed to the emergency room. Jill told the story on the TED stage. I'm riding in an ambulance across Boston to Mass General Hospital, and I curl up into a little fetal ball. And just like a balloon, with the last, last bit of air, just, just right out of the balloon, I just felt my energy lift, and just, I felt my spirit surrender. And, in that moment, I knew that I was no longer the choreographer of my life, and either the doctors rescue my body and give me a second chance at life, or this was perhaps my moment of transition. Jill's stroke wiped out almost everything she could do and who she was. As she later wrote in her book, in an instant, she became a woman trapped inside the body of an infant. And yet today... If I could go back to that day and have the stroke or not have the stroke, I am so grateful that I had the stroke experience. The thing is, on that morning of the stroke, even though she was a brain scientist at Harvard, Jill, at least initially, didn't know what was happening to her. I woke up to a pounding pain behind my left eye. And it was the kind of pain, caustic pain, that you get when you bite into ice cream. And it just gripped me. And then it released me. And then it just gripped me. And then it released me. And it was very unusual for me to ever experience any kind of, of pain. So I thought, OK, I'll just start my normal routine. So I got up and I jumped onto my cardio glider, which is a full body, full exercise machine. And I'm jamming away on this thing. And I'm realizing that my hands look like primitive claws grasping onto the bar. And I thought, that's very peculiar. And I looked down at my body, and I thought, whoa, I'm a weird-looking thing. 
And it was as though my consciousness had shifted away from my normal perception of reality, where I'm the person on the machine having the experience, to some esoteric space where I'm witnessing myself having this experience. And it was all very peculiar, and my headache was just getting worse. So I get off the machine, and I'm walking across my living room floor, and I realize that everything inside of my body has slowed way down. And every step is very rigid. There's no fluidity to my pace, and there's this constriction in my area of perception, so I'm just focused on internal systems. And I'm standing in my bathroom, getting ready to step into the shower, and I could actually hear the dialogue inside of my body. I heard a little voice saying, okay, you muscles, you got to contract, and you muscles, you relax. And and then I lost my balance, and I'm propped up against the, the wall. And I look down at my arm, and I realize that I can no longer define the boundaries of my body. Because the atoms and the molecules of my arm blended with the atoms and molecules of the wall. And all I could detect was this energy, energy. And I'm asking myself, what is wrong with me? What is going on? Knowing what you knew about the brain, were you almost like like mapping it in real time? Yes, on the morning of the stroke, it was uh, a pure mapping experience. So as soon as I was having a problem with the volume of the the way that the water hits the tub and there's this incredible amplification of the sound, well, you know, I immediately have a visualization of the circuit of the sound system in understanding amplification and knowing that I'm passing information through my brainstem. And I'm having problems at that level, and brainstem is uh, the potential for death. This is now a do-or-die situation. So, yes, I'm mapping as, as I'm losing circuit by circuit. At the same time, I'm going, what is wrong with me? Because, of course, I've never had a stroke before. What's amazing to me is, and, and in some ways what makes it even more terrifying to hear, is how... Remarkable guy, remarkable. Not terrifying, That's remarkable. That's I mean, I mean <laughs> you, like, the way you describe it is that you had control. Like, you were calm. You were rational. Well, I didn't know how severe it was. And, you know, people always ask me, was it to your advantage to be a brain scientist or not? And I think that on the morning of the stroke, it may not have been an advantage because I was fascinated instead of panicking. So it's like, okay, okay, I got a problem. But then I immediately drifted right back out into the consciousness. And I affectionately refer to this space as La La Land. But it was beautiful there. Imagine what it would be like to be totally disconnected from your brain chatter that connects you to the external world. So here I am in this space, and my job and any stress related to my my job, it was gone. And I felt lighter in my body. And imagine what it would feel like to lose 37 years of emotional baggage. Oh, I felt euphoria, euphoria. And in that moment, my right arm went totally paralyzed by my side. Then I realized, oh my gosh, I'm having a stroke. I'm having a stroke. And then the next thing my brain says to me is, wow, this is so cool. This is so cool. How many brain scientists have the opportunity to study their own brain from the inside out? And then it crosses my mind. But I'm a very busy woman. I don't have time for a stroke. Jill, of course, didn't really have a choice. She was rushed to surgery. The doctors took a blood clot the size of a golf ball out of her brain. And when she woke up, it was as if her brain was like a computer that was booting up for the first time. For example, my mother would ask me what I wanted for lunch. And 
it was it was file opening time. She would say, you know, do you want to have a peanut butter sandwich? And I'd go hunting, you know, where's where's peanut butter? Is there a file in my brain that understands peanut butter? And if there was, then, then I would say, okay. And then she would say, yeah, how about tuna fish? And I'd go hunting for the file in my brain that understood what tuna fish was. And as soon as we hit a file that I couldn't go in and hunt for and find some kind of association to, then we would relive that. So then she would give me tuna fish so that I would have that experience. And I had to learn everything. We didn't know if I would have language, again, because of where the hemorrhage had happened, this blood clot that was pushing on the fibers running between my ability to create sound, create language, as well as to place meaning on language. But I had to learn vocabulary from the beginning. I had to learn what emotions were. I had to be able to describe to my mother what I was feeling inside of my body. It took her constant care. And boy, it took a lot of sleep. And that was key for my my healing. It took eight long years of rehabilitation before Jill felt anything like the person she'd been before. And by the end of it, she realized her stroke taught her more about the brain than years of research in her lab at Harvard. And not just about its resilience, but about how our brain makes us who we are in ways we might never fully understand. Are you a different person? Like, are you the same person you were before December 10th, 1996? I'm, I'm, um, okay, so the way I look at this is a new character has come online My color scheme that I like to dress in is different. Before, you would look in my closet and all you would see is red, white, and black stripes, polka dots, any version, but it would be red, white, and black because every day I would get up and I would want to wear red, white, or black. So why even keep the other stuff in the closet? Uh, Today, I'm sitting here. I'm in blue jeans, which I never wore before. Uh, I always wore corduroys. And now I'm in fluorescent green. I love the fluorescent (laughs) colors. So this never would have happened with that other character. So no, I, I I see myself as a a very different person with a very different value structure than I had before. And um, there was a lot of pain in my past that got relieved. And wasn't that a lovely thing to be able to hit the reset button on my emotional circuitry so that I'm then capable of functioning fresh and new without any antagonism towards anybody? I didn't know if there was anybody I was supposed to be mad at because it was all gone. So so you said earlier that you were grateful for your stroke? Yeah. You know, there are hundreds, thousands of scientists who can do the work that I was doing in the lab. But for me to be able to have this internal experience of watching my own brain completely deteriorate in its ability to process all information and then to go through the experience of surgery and recovery has given me such an insight into my own workings of my brain and fortunately an insight into what does it take in order for a person to actually recover from a brain trauma. Now we understand that there is neurogenesis. We do grow some new neurons. We know that there is neuroplasticity. People are capable of recovering from brain trauma. And that's a completely different perspective than 15 years ago. Jill Bolte-Taylor. Her book about all this is called My Stroke of Insight. You can see her full talk, one of the most popular ever, at TED.com. On the show today, the unknown brain. Are there mysteries of the brain that are better left unsolved? Hmm. Um, I don't think so. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Easy Cater. Committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and company events. With online ordering and 24-7 live support, learn more at easycater.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort, journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more 
at viking.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Yahoo Finance. Think you've done it all when it comes to your financial future? Take those investments to the next level with Yahoo Finance. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, the unknown brain, the mystery of how billions of neurons make us who we are. You know, when I was starting this whole thing and just creating the method, the the lab I worked at had a blender, a kitchen blender, just sitting there on top of a, of a shelf. And I remember walking in and looking at that and thinking, am I really going to throw a human brain into a blender? This is Susanna. Susanna herculano Gazelle. She's a neuroscientist. And a professor at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. And that blender? Just sitting there on top of a, of a shelf. What led her to the blender was a question that had never really been answered. Why us? What does a human brain have that no other brain does? Why did we become the dominant species on Earth? The human brain must be special in some way compared to every single other brain on Earth. But how? Well, one popular idea was a number. There are 100 billion neurons in the adult human brain. 100 billion neurons. 100 100 100 billion 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 neurons. 100 billion neurons. 100 billion neurons. And we'd always thought that was more than any other brain on the planet. But believe it or not, no one had ever actually counted them before until Susanna did. So how'd you do it? Um, not in a blender. Yeah. <laughs> what you use is... Okay, um, so a blender would be a little crude. Instead, she used a special detergent to dissolve a brain... Turn it into soup. ...but leave the remnants of cells behind to count. Not one by one, of course, but using an equation and... How many nuclei you find in a given volume. Okay, so what's the answer? How many? We found an average of 86 billion neurons. 86 billion neurons in the human brain, which is pretty close to that 100 billion estimate. But I like to point out the 14 billion that are missing are an entire baboon brain. Oh, wow. That's a lot of neurons. If we had the mythical 100 billion neurons, we would be leaning towards the extraordinary, really. Hmm. But like I said, that's an entire baboon brain away. 86 billion neurons didn't explain what makes us special. In fact, it seemed to suggest, compared to our primate cousins, we're pretty ordinary. Here's Susanna's TED Talk. So the human brain may be remarkable, yes, but it is not special in its number of neurons. It is just a large primate brain. But let's play along. If all brains were made the same way and you were to compare animals with brains of different sizes, larger brains should always have more neurons than smaller brains, and the larger the brain, the more cognitively able its owner should be. So the largest brain around should also be the most cognitively able. And here comes the bad news. Our brain, not the largest one around. It seems quite vexing. Our brain weighs between 1.2 and 1.5 kilos, but elephant brains weigh between 4 and 5 kilos, and whale brains can weigh up to 9 kilos. That's because the size of the brain usually follows the size of the body. So the main reason for saying that our brain is larger than it should be actually comes from comparing ourselves to great apes. Gorillas can be two to three times larger than we are, so their brain should also be larger than ours, but instead it's the other way around. Our brain is three times larger than a gorilla brain. The human brain also seems special in the amount of energy that it uses. Although it weighs only 2% of the body, it alone uses 25% of all the energy that your body requires to run per day. That's 500 calories out of a total of 2,000 calories just to keep your brain working. So, the human brain is larger than it should be, it uses much more energy than it should, so it's special. And this is where the story started to bother me. So Susanna asked another question. Why does our brain burn so much energy? And what she found is that it's not about how many neurons we have, but where those neurons are located. 
16 of our 86 billion neurons are clustered in a part of the brain known as the cerebral cortex. So the cerebral cortex is really responsible for all those things that we like to think of as superior cognitive abilities, the ability to plan ahead, to look back, to learn from your mistakes. So what is so remarkable about the human brain is that we manage to have a number of neurons in the cerebral cortex that is many times larger than any other animal has. Wow, so 16 billion neurons in in our cerebral cortex. How many, I don't know, like, how many does a mouse have? A mouse has about 30 million. And an elephant? An elephant has 5.6 billion neurons. What about, like, an ape? 9 billion neurons in the cerebral cortex. So how did we get, like, almost twice as many as an ape? Well, the answer is that to add more neurons to your brain, you need more energy. A brain Hmm. with more neurons costs more energy. And gorillas and orangutans eat raw foods, leaves, fruit, bark. They spend around eight and a half hours per day, every single day, collecting food, eating food, and looking for food. And with the amount of energy that they get from that food, they can just sustain the large bodies that they have and the number of neurons that they have. Now, what about humans? With the brain that we have today, we would have to spend more than nine and a half hours per day looking for food and eating food. So somewhere back in our history, in our evolutionary history, our ancestors must have found a way to modify what we eat in a way that gives you many more calories than just raw food. Yeah. And what we know that does that beautifully is cooking. 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 We are who we are because of cooking. We learn to modify the food that we eat, and that allowed us to just cram more neurons inside the brain. To cook is to use fire to pre-digest foods outside of your body. Cooked foods are softer, so they're easier to chew and to turn completely into mush in your mouth. So that allows them to be completely digested and absorbed in your gut, which makes them yield much more energy and much less time. So cooking frees time for us to do much more interesting things with our day and with our neurons than just thinking about food, looking for food, and gobbling down food all day long. So because of cooking, what once was a major liability, this large, dangerously expensive brain with a lot of neurons, could now become a major asset. Now that we could both afford the energy for a lot of neurons and the time to do interesting things with them. So I think this explains why the human brain grew to become so large, so fast in evolution, all the while remaining just a primate brain. It's just, it's just like completely changes the way I'm going to see Top Chef from now on. I know. It completely changed the way I look at my kitchen. Yeah. It's, uh, the, the act of cooking has become something of uh, not a miracle, but something to yeah. be revered. Yeah. So how does like, this change the way you think about what it means to be human? I think it's very humbling. We're animals. We're just another species. It so happens that we were able to pack so much processing power in our cerebral cortex that we're even at that point now of looking at ourselves and gaining insight on how we work. It's amazing that we are studying essentially this thing that that runs us. Right, which... I think it's a lot of fun that some philosophers used to say that, you know, it's impossible. How can you ever use your very brain to understand how your brain works? And, um, well, neuroscience has proven them wrong. That's neuroscientist Susanna Herculano-Hausel. Check out her full talk at ted.npr.org. So... We know the brain is this complex collection of 86 billion neurons. But until pretty recently, scientists weren't really sure how those neurons worked together. Was the brain like a utility knife, one tool that did many different things? Or was it more like a Swiss Army knife, 
with specific mechanisms for specific tasks. So take one specific task, for example, one that your brain performs pretty much every single day, and that is recognizing someone else's face. Uh, well, there's a bunch of different things that happen when you see a face. This is Nancy Kenwisher. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist at MIT. And just think, she says, about all the different variables your brain has to grapple with when you look at another person. Right? Like every time you see a person, they look different. From different viewpoints, a profile and a front view are totally different. From way their hair falls on their face, the expression on their face, the lighting. What about, you know, like when you see a face and you know it, but you can't place it? Right? You get a signal like, I know that person. Yeah. But that's a different thing than which particular person is it in terms of what else do I know about them? Where did I meet them? And that, in turn, is a different thing than what is their name? And the thing is, it's possible for your brain to get hung up anywhere along that chain. Okay, just look at my face and tell me what happens when I do this, all right? So this is a video that Nancy pointed us to. An incredible video. It was made by some colleagues of hers. Joseph Parvizi and Colony Grill Spector. Two neurologists who were treating a man with epilepsy. And they wanted to find the source of his seizures. So they placed electrodes on the surface of his brain. But by chance, what they found was a pulse from those electrodes. Nothing. Nothing. In just the right place. Okay. Had an unintended effect on their patient. I'm going to do it one more time. And the guy was looking at the surgeon when they stimulated that region. Look at my face. One, two, three. And he said, You just turned into somebody else. The doctor's face instantly became unrecognizable. Your nose got saggy, went to the left. You almost looked like somebody I'd seen before, but somebody different. That was a trip. The effect of that pulse had accidentally recreated a condition that actually exists in real life. A condition where you can't remember faces. It's called face blindness. That's right. Or prosopagnosia. So prosopagnosia, which has been known for a long time, is that people can selectively lose their ability to recognize faces. How does that happen? They have brain damage, usually from a stroke or from a um, you know, physical injury to the brain. And if it's very, very focal in just a tiny part of the brain, then you are perfectly normal at absolutely everything else, but you can't recognize faces. Which raised a big question for Nancy and her colleagues at MIT. Here's her TED Talk. We wanted to know if there was a special part of the brain for recognizing faces. So I was the first subject. I went into the scanner. I lay on my back. I held my head as still as I could while staring at pictures of faces and objects and faces and objects for hours. So as somebody who has pretty close to the world record of total number of hours spent inside an MRI scanner, I can tell you that one of the skills that's really important for MRI research is bladder control. <laughs> so, when I got out of the scanner, I did a quick analysis of the data, looking for any parts of my brain that produced a higher response when I was looking at faces than when I was looking at objects. And here's what I saw. That region right there, that little blob, it's about the size of an olive, and it's on the bottom surface of my brain, about an inch straight in, okay? And what that part of my brain is doing is producing a higher MRI response uh, that is higher neural activity when I was looking at faces than when I was looking at objects. So that's pretty cool. But how do we know this isn't a fluke? Well, the easiest way is to just do the experiment again. So you have your brain scanned, and then like the part that's responding to, to facial recognition is like lighting up, and, and, and you do this like several, several... Oh, I've done it hundreds of times. I like it in there. <laughs> what, what, what's it like? Oh, it's peaceful. I go in there and I think, ah, we're going to get this great data. I have these wonderful students. I can't wait to see what my brain is doing when I do this task. So let's find the face region. And we um, found it right away. I remember I was just so excited. I remember like a week later, it's like, oh, okay, let's try it again. I can remember 
running out to this. We had this computer right outside the scanner. It's like, do a quick analysis. And he's like, ah, oh, it's not going to still be there. It's not going to still be there. Oh, there it is. Wow. It's, we did that like 10 times before we kind of really believed that the thing was for real. <laughs> like when we talk about regions of the brain that light up, we're yeah. still talking about an area that encompasses billions and billions of, of, of neurons and, and trillions of synaptic connections, right? That's right. So the smallest unit in in my data is usually called a voxel. It's like a three-dimensional pixel. It's mm. a teeny little cube that's two or three millimeters on a side. And so it's either, you know, it has some magnitude of response, some brightness. That's our basic unit. But that teeny little voxel has half a million neurons in it. Wow. So that just tells you a lot of the stuff we can't see. We see this just drastically blurred version of the actual uh, neural code. Now, to try and get a better grasp of what that blurry image means, Nancy and other scientists are asking, why is it that some tasks don't seem to have their own special real estate in the brain, when other tasks, like recognizing faces or processing colors or even identifying body parts, do? Do we also have specialized brain regions for other senses, like hearing? Yes, we do. Here's a region that we reported just a couple of months ago. And this region responds strongly when you hear sounds with pitch, like these. Okay, in contrast, that same region does not respond strongly when you hear perfectly familiar sounds that don't have a clear pitch, like these. What's important to me about this work is not the particular locations of these brain regions, but the simple fact that we have selective, specific components of mind and brain in the first place. I mean, it could have been otherwise. The brain could have been a single general purpose processor, more like a kitchen knife than a Swiss army knife. Instead, what brain imaging has delivered is this rich and interesting picture of the human mind. It's early days in this enterprise. The most fundamental questions remain unanswered. How are all these things connected in the brain? How does all of this very systematic structure get built, both over development in childhood and over the evolution of our species? This is, I think, the greatest scientific quest of all time. I mean, there's some some process that is happening right now as 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 I'm speaking to you and you're speaking to me and we're we're stringing these words together and having a conversation and it's just it's just it's the damnedest thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole question of how you take a thought and a bunch of sounds come out your mouth, like right. what? Yeah. How, how does that ever happen? How does it happen? Well, I think we want to know these things to know who we are. That's why I work in this field, is I want to know who we are. And I think modern human cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience are starting to give us an answer to that, at least who we are as thinkers. And who we are as thinkers is is these machines that have a bunch of highly specialized components, some very general purpose machinery. And now we're starting to know what those components are, what each one does. Like, that's that's the beginning of a depiction of what a human mind is. I think that's an incredibly exciting thing to have. Nancy Kanwisher is a cognitive neuroscientist at MIT. You can see her full talk at TED.com. Our show today, The Unknown Brain. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Planet Oat. While some podcast topics can be complex and pretty heady, Planet Oat oat milk is an uncomplicated no-brainer. It's rich, creamy, and an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D. Also, Planet Oat's unsweetened varieties have zero grams of sugar. It's great in coffee, cereal, smoothies, you name it. So next time you're at the grocery store, save the overthinking for the podcast and reach for the one that has it all. Planet Oat Oat Milk or visit planetoat.com for more. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. 
kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI, generating instant, personalized results that know and show your brand identity. Explain what your site is about, choose your tone, and enter what you need to get short or long-form text. No matter the placement, Squarespace AI makes it easier to go live, stand out, and succeed online. Use code RADIOHOUR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and today on the show, we're asking... How patterns of electrical pulses passing between cells in an organ in your body can be thought. Or, you know, how does the brain work? Make us who we are. (laughs) An almost impossible question, maybe, but one that totally... Totally. ...excites Rebecca Sachs. Could you think of anything better? Rebecca is a neuroscientist at MIT. She's actually worked with Nancy Canwisher there, who we just heard from. But while Nancy studies how the brain recognizes faces... I study how does the brain figure out what somebody else is thinking? So how does it happen? (laughs) Well, here's one way of thinking about it. You're watching Romeo and Juliet. Okay. And you see... Juliet wakes up. Oh, comfortable friar. She can't see Romeo yet. Where is my lord? So right now, what's going on in her mind? She knows that she's in a mausoleum. To remember well where I should be, and there I am. She knows she's not dead, but that everybody thinks she's dead. Where is my Romeo? And right now, what she thinks is, everything's worked out. The whole plan has worked. Yeah. So now imagine you're in the audience watching that, and you see... Juliet, you know what she's thinking. Everything's going to be fine. I get to marry Romeo and run away, and it all worked. But you also know that she's totally devastatingly wrong. They did come from this nest of death, contagion, and unnatural sleep. Romeo is already dead. It's already too late. Come, come, away. Thy husband in thy bosom there lies dead. So huge parts of your brain are devoted to solving just those problems, knowing where the girl is, knowing what words she's saying, knowing what those sentences mean. Cut closed in my true love's hand. Poison, I see, hath been his timeless end. But all of that gets processed and processed through many, many, many different brain regions until you distill it down to this one more complicated problem above and beyond the words and the images is the set of meanings that are about her thoughts and feelings. So how does the brain do that? Yeah. Fifteen years ago when I started in this field, it wasn't clear you could ask that question as a scientist. And that's, to me, that's kind of the miraculous thing. It's not that there is an answer. It's that the very limited tools we have now for studying the brain are enough to let us make a little bit of progress. And Rebecca is slowly making progress on the central question of her work. How can one brain know another? Here she is on the TED stage. And put another way, the crux of the problem is the machine that we use for thinking about other minds, our brain, is made up of pieces, brain cells, that we share with all other animals, with monkeys and mice and even sea slugs. And yet you put them together in a particular network, and what you get is the capacity to write Romeo and Juliet, or to say, as Alan Greenspan did, I know you think you understand what you thought I said, but I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. (laughs) So first, the first thing I want to tell you is that there's a brain region in the human brain, in your brains, whose job it is to think about other people's thoughts. It's called the right temporoparietal junction. It's above and behind your right ear. And you don't use it for solving any other kinds of logical problems. The second thing I want to say about this brain system is that although we human adults are really good at understanding other minds, we weren't always that way. It takes children a long time to break into the system. And I'm going to show you a little bit of that long extended process. The first thing I'm going to show you is a change between age three and five, as kids learn to understand that somebody else can have beliefs that are different from their own. So I'm going to show you a five-year-old who's getting a standard kind of puzzle that we call the false belief task. The false belief task is a way of measuring how well a child can think about someone else's thoughts. Rebecca showed us a video of the task, which involves a five-year-old 
and a puppet show starring two pirates. This is the first pirate. His name is Ivan. And you know what pirates really like? What? Pirates really like cheese sandwiches. Cheese? I love cheese. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. All pirates love cheese sandwiches. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, here's what's happening. The first pirate, Ivan, puts his cheese sandwich down on a treasure chest. But then he realizes he forgot his drink to go with the sandwich. And so Ivan goes to get a drink. And while Ivan is away, the wind comes. And it blows the sandwich down onto the grass. And now, here comes the other pirate. This pirate is called Joshua. See? And Joshua also really loves cheese sandwich. Okay, so then Joshua, the second pirate, he also has a cheese sandwich. His own sandwich. And he says, yum, 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 yum. I love cheese sandwiches. But he puts his down on the treasure chest as well. So now we have two cheese sandwiches. Ivan's, which is now on the ground. And Joshua's, which is now sitting on top of the treasure chest. So that one is his. That one's Joshua's. That's right. And then his went on the ground. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, So he won't know which one is his. And then the key thing that happens is the first pirate. Actually, I can't remember who's the first pirate. Is the first one Ivan? I think think Ivan's the first one. Ivan is the first one. Yes. Ivan, the first pirate, he comes back. And he says, I want my cheese sandwich. So which one do you think Ivan's going to take? I think he was going to take that one. Yeah, you think he's going to take that one? All right, let's see. I told you. Oh, yeah, you were right. He took that one. Ivan, of course, takes the clean sandwich on the chest because that's where he left it. That's what he thinks. That's what he thinks. Right. And that's a conclusion you'd reach if you're 5 or 10 or 50. But a 3-year-old can't quite work that out. In fact, if you are 3, you fail this test. Yeah, Because you can't quite understand what the first pirate was thinking. Can't work out that he could have beliefs different from reality. Your average three-year-old can't quite process the idea that another person can think different thoughts. But a five-year-old can. And although we know that something happens between the ages of three and five in that little patch of brain that Rebecca studies, we still don't know what. That little patch of brain is made up of millions of neurons. But it's like if you were looking down at Iowa from an airliner, there's all these fields, and inside the fields are plants. And the individual plants are growing their individual ears of corn. Well, you can't see the ears of corn. You can't see the plants. But you can see the fields. And you can see that some of the fields are a little brighter green and some of them are a little darker green. So we're, we're looking at the brain from an airliner, and we can see the difference that in some kids, you can see, okay, bright patch over there, darker patch over there, and in other kids, it's pretty much all the same color all over the fields. And so the challenge of modern neuroscience is to try and figure out how we can see the kernels of corn in those fields, not just the colors they add up to. But Rebecca says even knowing where those fields are That's a huge leap forward in what we know about the brain. Yeah, because this science is so hard. Most ideas don't work for a million reasons. That when you have a theory and a prediction and a method and you think, if I'm onto something, I know what to expect here, and that happens, that's kind of amazing. Rebecca Sachs runs Sachs Lab. It's a neuroscience lab at MIT. Her full talk is at TED.com. So we've been hearing from brain scientists who are asking how a bunch of neurons and synaptic connections in the brain add up to us, to who we are. But it's consciousness, the subjective experience of the mind, that allows us to ask the question in the first place. And where consciousness comes from? That is an entirely separate question. Well, I like to distinguish between the easy problems of consciousness and the hard problem. This is David Chalmers. He's a philosopher who coined this term, the hard problem of consciousness. But the easy problems are ultimately a matter of explaining behavior, things we do. And I think brain science is great at problems like that. It can isolate a neural circuit and show how it enables you to see a red object, to respond and say, that's red. But the hard problem 
of consciousness as subjective experience. Why, when all that happens in this circuit, does it feel like something? How does a bunch of 86 billion neurons interacting inside the brain coming together, how does that produce the subjective experience of a mind and of the world? Here's how David Chalmers begins his TED Talk. Right now, you have a movie playing inside your head. It has 3D vision and surround sound for what you're seeing and hearing right now. Your movie has smell and taste and touch. It has a sense of your body, pain, hunger, orgasms. It has emotions, anger, and happiness. It has memories, like scenes from your childhood playing before you. This movie is your stream of consciousness. If we weren't conscious, nothing in our lives would have meaning or value. But at the same time, it's the most mysterious phenomenon in the universe. Why are we conscious? Why is consciousness more than just the sum of the brain's parts? Well, the question is, you know, what is the brain? It's this giant complex computer, Mm. um, a bunch of interacting parts with great complexity. What does all that explain? It explains objective mechanism. Consciousness is subjective by its nature. It's a matter of subjective experience. And it seems that we can imagine all that stuff going on in the brain without consciousness. And the question is, where is the consciousness from there? Like if someone could do that, they'd get a Nobel Prize. You know, so right. here is the mapping from this circuit to this state of consciousness. But underneath that is always going to be the question, why, how, and how does the brain give you consciousness in the first place? Right now, nobody knows the answers to those questions. So we may need one or two ideas that initially seem crazy before we can come to grips with consciousness scientifically. The first crazy idea is that consciousness is fundamental. Physicists sometimes take some aspects of the universe as fundamental building blocks, space and time and mass, and you build up the world from there. Well, I think that's the situation we're in. If you can't explain consciousness in terms of the existing fundamentals, space, time, the natural thing to do is to postulate consciousness itself as something fundamental, a fundamental building block of nature. The second crazy idea is that consciousness might be universal. This view is sometimes called panpsychism. Pan for all, psych for mind, every system is conscious, not just humans, dogs, mice, flies, but even microbes. Even a photon has some degree of consciousness. The idea is not that photons are intelligent or thinking. You know, it's not that a photon is racked with angst because it's thinking, ah, I'm always buzzing around near the speed of light. I never get to slow down and smell the roses. No, not like that. But uh, the thought is maybe photons might have some element of raw subjective feeling, some primitive precursor to consciousness. So this is a, this is a pretty big idea, right? Like that, that not just flies, but microbes or photons all have consciousness. And I mean, we, like as humans, we want to we believe that our consciousness is what makes us special, right? Like different from anything else. Well, I would say yes and no. I'd say the fact of consciousness does not make us special. But maybe we've got a special type of consciousness because, you know, consciousness is not on and off. It comes in all these rich and amazing varieties. There's vision, there's hearing, there's thinking, there's emotion, and so on. So our consciousness is far richer, I think, than the consciousness, say, of a mouse or a fly. But if you, if you want to look for what makes us distinct, don't look for just our being conscious. Look for the kind of consciousness we have. For example, we're self-conscious. We're conscious of ourselves. That's not something which probably a, uh, an earthworm has. It's also natural to ask about consciousness in other systems, like computers. What about the artificially intelligent system in the movie Her, Samantha? Is she conscious? Well, if you take the informational panpsychist view, she certainly has complicated information processing and integration. 
So the answer is very likely yes, she is conscious. If that's right, it raises pretty serious ethical issues about both the ethics of developing intelligent computer systems and the ethics of turning them off. Finally, you might ask about the consciousness of whole groups, the planet, or at a more local level. There's an integrated group like the audience at a TED conference. Are we right now having a collective consciousness, an inner movie for this TED group, which is distinct from the inner movies of each of our parts? I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's at least one worth taking seriously. So if consciousness could be collective, I mean, couldn't it mean that, that it might not live in the brain? Yeah, it's a tricky question. I mean, I think you could say that, you know, if consciousness, for example, is a universal, if it attaches to particles, then, you know, when an electron has consciousness, the consciousness is somehow attached to that particle. It's not like it's somewhere else. I sometimes get attracted by the idea that, you know, consciousness is like what the thing is like on the inside. Yeah. Physics studies all this stuff from the outside, their interactions with each other, their relations to each other, but they've got to have an intrinsic nature. It's got to be something, and physics doesn't tell us about that. Maybe that's consciousness, and maybe when we're introspecting our own consciousness, this is actually getting some insight into the intrinsic nature of the matter inside our brains. Is, is this the biggest mystery of the brain? I think it's the biggest mystery in the universe, if you ask me, but it's certainly the biggest mystery of the brain. Where does consciousness come from? Nobody knows. Nobody understands it. You know, I mean, a few hundred years ago, we were there with, like, you know, space and time. What on earth are they? Where do they come from? Now we understand those pretty well, but and we're filling in the scientific picture of the world pretty well at some level, but then consciousness just sticks out like a sore thumb. No one's got a good theory of it. it makes you say, you know, is it just the brain? Or is there something more? David Chalmers teaches philosophy at New York University. You can hear his entire talk at TED.com. My brain is always ticking, my brain. My brain is always ticking, my brain. My brain is always ticking. Long as I am live and kicking my brain. Cool little cluster, that's my brain. Thanks for listening to our show on the unknown brain this week. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Chris Benderev, with help from Daniel Shukin. Barton Girdwood is our intern. In the front office, Eric Newsom and Portia Robertson Migas. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. My brain, it's a cool cluster, that's my brain. This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.